us. This morning we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 8 at our Savior, the Savior, Jesus. And if you are a guest with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. Most Sundays I get to be the one who brings God's Word. And we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark, a series entitled Amazed, uh, appropriately so, because really this Gospel is a Gospel that is meant uh, to portray Jesus in a way to us, not only accurately, but in a way that, that would capture our attention, in a way that would result in us being amazed, and not in a way that we would just idly be amazed and take it in, but in a way that we would respond, a way that we would, as a result of being amazed, put our faith in him and follow him. So really, being amazed and following is really what this gospel is about. And we see, uh, we see not only reasons to be amazed, but we see how to follow. And our, our section today actually is embarking on a new little subsection in Mark that further describes what it means to follow Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have been enjoying going through Mark. And this is a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark, that, that can kind of seem like a, an old piece of furniture in your house. It can kind of seem like that old, you know, dusty, uh, easy chair or whatever that is just there and you take for granted, you know, I know it, I'm familiar with it, and, and it, it's, you know, it's there. I appreciate it, but, you know, I take it for granted. I, I don't know uh, if it, this is the case for you, but sometimes uh, the Gospels and different books of the Bible can just feel like that. Like, yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, that's just part of the furniture here. Well, the metaphor for me is shifting as I'm spending time in Mark, uh, as I'm spending time meditating on and studying Mark and praying through it and considering Mark and, and the metaphor shifting from an old dusty piece of furniture to a to a new, brand new Lamborghini Roadster. That's kind of a metaphor shift for me. Uh, I looked up actually the, one of the latest Lamborghini Roadsters and it goes like zero to 60 in a microsecond, three, three seconds, top speed of over 200 miles per hour and, and so forth and so on. Was it 750 horsepower? Just an amazing $4.5 million vehicle. And that's kind of what my experience has been like as we're going through Mark. It's shifting from a dusty old piece of furniture to this roadster that, that, you know, that is just amazing. And the horsepower behind this roadster is the Holy Spirit. And this book is uh, impacting my life. I hope, I pray, I expect, because it's the Word of God, that it's impacting your life as well. It, it shouldn't be a dusty piece of furniture, but something that transforms our lives. And this section today is no exception. This is a section, a short section, verses 22 to 26. A little story here, a little maybe throwaway story uh, that's full of truth and is, is a transition story as the storyline moves from a section on uh, Jesus doing many miracles to Jesus teaching about discipleship. He uses this story, Mark does, God through Mark uses this story uh, about a healing of a blind man to teach us some fundamental things about following Jesus. So we're going to dig into this story, we're going to learn from it, and we're going to seek to apply it because that's God's intention for us. This book, this section of scripture is given to us and given to you today because God wants to 
impact your life, as Steve talked about. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to speak to us. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active and powerful and alive and thrilling more than anything else, really, Lord, because in it we encounter you. Things like Lamborghinis might seem really cool, but Lord, you are glorious and your word is powerful. And as your word is preached and comprehended in the power of your Holy Spirit, there is transformation in our lives and we thank you for it, Lord. And we ask you now, this morning, would you come and speak to us and would you transform us? Would you change us? Would you speak to us? Lord, would you use me? I need your help. I want your help, Lord. Um, I long for you and your glory in and through my life, and I long for you and your glory in and through our church. So, Lord, do all this and more this morning through your word, for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take a look with me at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. We have it projected. You can follow or follow in your Bible, even better. It says in verse 22, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. God's word from Mark, chapter 8, 22 to 26. This story here uh, is a wonderful story. It's a story, another story of healing. And we've seen a lot of stories of of healing that are recorded in Mark. We've seen stories of healing of a leper, a paralytic, a, a man with a withered hand, a woman with chronic bleeding, a woman with a fever, a deaf man, a dead girl, and never mind, many oppressed by demons. We've been seeing many miracles already. There are actually many instances in Mark where it, it alludes to uh, multiple miracles just generally without saying the specifics and without recording. So in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 6, two times, it just talks about Jesus going in and healing many and yet they're never mentioned. And those are probably, I don't know, if you, a guess, a good guess would be probably thousands of healings, maybe even more than that. I don't know, maybe tens of thousands. There were a lot of people gathering around Jesus and, and there were many instances where they came and he just was healing people all day long, even, even into the night. And I don't know, if, you know, if we compiled a gospel, if somehow we wanted to make a story, if we were around, then we might think differently now with a modern mind. You know, we would like to have the encyclopedia of healings. You know, we would want a book that lists all, you know, 10,000 healings and documented the specifics and everything. But Mark doesn't do that. Why not? Did he not care about historical accuracy? Did he not care about details? Well, Mark's intent in his gospel, and really God's intent through Mark, is is not so much to give us details about the healings themselves, but to speak to us through these healings about Jesus. 
These healings and these stories are chosen wisely by Mark to communicate something about Jesus, some truth about Jesus, some truth about the kingdom that we might understand as we read the gospel, as we encounter the gospel, that we might understand who Jesus is and what does it mean to follow him. And so this story is put here for a reason. It's put here to teach us. It's put here to help us understand some truths in the whole storyline. So let's take a little bit of time just to analyze the story and think about it. Think about how it is similar and how it is different than other healings. And then in that, I think, to draw some conclusions. Well, this healing of the blind man is a lot like other healings, particularly similar to the earlier healing of the deaf man that, that Mike Lilly preached recently. In the healing, there is someone with a physical malady. In this case, it's blindness. This person encounters Jesus. Those who are uh, around or the individual uh, press Jesus to help. Jesus takes this man away from the village, away from the crowd, just like in chapter 7. He uses his hands and, and saliva in this case, and that may seem kind of weird to us. Saliva, that's gross. But in the day, that was uh, understood uh, as, as a means of healing. It was similar to laying hands on somebody. There were medicinal connotations to it as well. So for us, it's gross. For them, it was, it was kind of like using, you know, salve uh, ointment or something like that. It was appropriate. So it's a, a means of, of ministry to this person. So in both cases, that's what goes on. Jesus has contact with the person. That's the bottom line. These are extensions of his presence, laying on the hands and and saliva. And the man is healed. And this is is a similar pattern between chapter 7, the the deaf person, and here, the blind man. And these are all pointing, really, to Jesus, that he has authority over all maladies, that he has compassion. Those are truths that are in common here. They, They all point to the kingdom of God coming the reign of God through the King, Jesus himself, coming to, to heal, to save, to right wrongs, to bring peace and wholeness. They point to the kingdom. And also, there are elements in Mark, particularly as time goes on, of secrecy. This is a common theme where Jesus doesn't want people to know what he's doing. He, he does, he wants them to know to a degree, but he, he doesn't want the exposure because he's coming to bring the kingdom on his terms. They want, really, a popular king. He wants a crucified king to rule. And that is not something that they want. So he has to, he has to keep it a secret and it, because he wants to keep people from basically making him king on their terms. And so that's a similar... These are all similar things among the healings. Well, what's different here? What's different in this story? Well, this is interesting. This is a, a case where someone is healed in stages. If I'm correct in recalling, I think it's the only place in Jesus' ministry where there are stages of healing. The man receives healing to a degree. He's a blind man and he's, Jesus uh, prays for him, ministers to him, and then he's able to see, but he's only able to see in a blurry way. He can't see well. He only sees forms and he looks around and he sees people and he says they look like trees walking. Now we have to assume that he probably developed his blindness in time and at one point could see so he would understand 
what trees and people look like. And he says they look like trees walking. Now, this is not an inspiration for Tolkien's you know, tree beard or anything if you're a fan. Or that's not what's going on here. He just says, basically, I can't tell the difference between people and just trees. I just see shadows, and they're moving. And that's, what's, that's what he's saying. That's the point here. There's no, there's no mystery. There's no some you know, deep meaning to this phrase, trees walking. The guy just can't see clearly. That's the point. And so, Jesus lays hands on him again, and he's healed. And then he can see clearly. It's an unusual case. This is Jesus. Now, Jesus could have, he's, he's God in the flesh, right? Jesus is fully God, right? God does anything he wants to do. Anything. Anything he's pleased to do, he does. If he chooses to do something, it's done. No one can oppose him. No one, nothing can oppose him. He does whatever he wants. So Jesus could have just healed this guy with one step, right? And yet he doesn't. Now we don't know why. We don't know all the reasons why he doesn't do this. We don't know why he doesn't heal him in one step. Um, But I think I know one reason why. Because Jesus wanted to give an object lesson to those around him. And he wanted to give an object lesson to us as well. He wants us to understand something about healing. He wants us to understand some aspect of healing here. And this story is put right in the middle of the storyline where we're watching the disciples. Do you remember uh, last week how the disciples didn't understand who Jesus was? Even after these miraculous feedings, they still are worrying about whether they have enough bread. And Jesus says, guys, weren't you there? Do you still not understand? Do you not perceive? They were dull. They were blind, but not fully blind. They were themselves experiencing healing in stages. They saw, but they didn't see. And right after the storyline, we're going to see Peter do something that's really amazing. Almost seemingly with one breath, he declares by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that you truly are the Christ the Son of the living God. He declares this wonderful truth. He sees clearly. And then in the same breath almost, he says, Jesus, may it never be that you would go to the cross. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. So in the same instance almost, he sees, and yet he doesn't see. And the Gospel of Mark is written by Someone named Mark. Good, you can answer that one. And Mark was a disciple, uh, someone who was around Peter. And it's probably very likely that Peter had a poignant memory of this whole interaction that he did and this previous healing. And God, in his wisdom and care for us, preserved this so that we might draw some key lessons here. That we might understand that in discipleship, in following Jesus, in encountering Jesus, he comes and he cures the blind, but it often comes in stages. Healing and curing and seeing can come in stages. That's the lesson for the disciples. That's the lesson for us. So let's take time to to kind of go through that, think about it, learn from it, and apply it. Before we get into that too much, I just want to talk a little bit about blindness. 
I want to talk about physical blindness, because this is a story about someone who has physical blindness. And then I want to talk about, I want to talk about spiritual blindness. Because that's the, that's the point here. That's the implication. Is that Jesus is speaking not only of physical blindness, but of spiritual blindness as well. So let's take some time to think about what is blindness? What is physical blindness? It's the inability to perceive light. To perceive it either in, uh, correctly in intensity or acuity, sharpness. There are over 7 million people in the United States with serious visual impairment, blindness of some sort, about 2% of the population. And if you're blind, it affects your world. It affects your world greatly. Now, uh, there are many people that, that I've known who are blind, and actually everyone that I know who has serious impairment, they are heroes uh, in how they deal with life. And it's just remarkable to talk to them and see how they interact, and to see how they, some of the effects of their blindness, it's not just deficit, there are some uh, positive effects. They often have sharpened senses. Um, they can be more sensitive in, in different ways than, than seeing people might be. And that's wonderful, but the reality is, too, that they have an impairment. They're not able to see. They're not able to perceive. They can't see light well enough. So some of the aspects of living that we enjoy, they don't have. They can't have a conversation with you and perceive the nuances in your facial expressions. Just think about all the nuances when we say something and how we can say them slightly different depending on our facial expression. They can't see that. They can't see the glory of a sunset. They can't see obstacles that might be in their way. They can't see the path to go. They, they can't see things, and it impairs them. It affects them. It makes them vulnerable. They need others to assist them. They need help seeing eye dogs or, or other sounds and people to navigate. And it's a significant impairment. And again, people who have it that I've known are heroes in how they deal with this. But there is a blindness that's more significant than physical blindness. There's spiritual blindness. Blind people, physically blind people, fail to perceive physical reality with their physical eyes. Spiritually blind people fail to perceive spiritual reality through spiritual eyes. And this metaphor between physical blindness and spiritual blindness is throughout the Bible. One well-known instance is in John chapter 9. Jesus uh, interacts with a man who's born blind. He's never seen. He's been born blind. And he's healed. And if you read the story, we're going to look at it in a minute, the story doesn't end with his physical healing. It ends with a spiritual healing and an indictment of others' spiritual blindness. So look with me at John chapter 9, verses 35 and following. Jesus has healed the man and... And the man is actually cast out of the synagogue, the, essentially the local church, for his support of Jesus. And it says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the synagogue. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Think of the meaning of that statement. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. This man is able to see now and, per and perceive not only physically but spiritually. He is seeing at this moment. 
he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This man saw at that moment. He understood not only physically who was in front of him, but spiritually who this was. And we know that because it says he saw him, but he says, says he worshipped him. He knew that this is the Messiah, the, the Christ, and that he is God. He worships him, calls him Lord. And then it says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They are blind. Spiritually. And so this point of spiritual blindness is important to understand, and that's what this story is getting at. Not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. If you took a blind person to an art museum, they could not perceive looking the difference really between a Rembrandt and, and an exit sign in terms of sight. They wouldn't be able to perceive differences. If you showed them a sunset at the beach, they may ex- experience and perceive a lot of things, but they're not going to see the sunset. And it's no different. That sunset to them is no different than the middle of, a, of a, the night, a cloudy night. They see no difference. A spiritual person cannot discern value. They cannot dis- discern beauty. They cannot discern what's worthy. They cannot discern the value and the worth and the goodness of God. Now, that's not to say there isn't some degree of understanding and seeing. We know all people do see God in His creation. But they don't perceive the difference. Like the blind person who can't tell between an exit sign and a remembrance. A spiritually blind person can't tell the difference between the glory of God and and just the, the glory of man. And so they're blind. This is the reality of of humanity. And Scripture teaches us about this, that really it's not just the Pharisees that are blind, but it's really all mankind is born blind. Blind by nature. Romans 3 tells us, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one can see. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are blind. 2 Corinthians 4 says, and, and even if our gospel, these are, you can project these if you can find them. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People are blind to the glory of God. They're blind to truth. They're blind to what matters. They're blind to the wonder of the gospel. And spiritual blindness is much more serious than physical blindness. For spiritual blindness, you are unable to see and know God and to know life. To to not know God is is to not know life, true life. It's to be spiritually dead and to live in the place of spiritual deadness. And if it continues, to live there forever. In darkness. It's a serious condition. It's the condition of all mankind. It's my condition. It's your condition apart from God's intervention to be spiritually blind. Now this story is here to tell us 
that there's some good news for the blind. Jesus heals the blind. Jesus cures blindness. Jesus heals not only physical blindness, but more importantly, spiritual blindness. Jesus cures blindness. He's Lord over this, and he brings cures to the blind. This man in this story experienced seeing. He was able to see. His life was transformed. And and this was in a day when to be blind was really to, to, to suffer because they didn't have perhaps some of the things that we have, the sensitivities and the opportunities that we have. This man's life was transformed by going blind and then transformed by seeing. And Jesus came to bring the ability to see physically. It's glorious just in that. This man is healed. His life is changed. But this story is here not just to talk about being healed physically, as important as that is. As we talk about, it's chosen strategically in the storyline to speak about spiritual blindness and seeing and the truth that we are often healed in stages. Jesus is the one who cures blindness. He is the source and the essence of light. Blindness is the inability to see light. Spiritual blindness is the inability to see spiritual light, truth and goodness. Jesus is that light. And He comes to bring light to those in darkness. He comes to show His truth. He comes to open eyes, to open blind eyes, to open your eyes. Is good news in Mark chapter 8 for you and for me and for us. He is the source and the essence of the light. And really the core of the light, the core of who Christ is, is what we call the gospel, the good news of Christ. The good news about Christ. The the core of Christ is the gospel. And that's why we're gospel-centered. We're gospel-centered because we're called to be Christ-centered. And to be Christ-centered is to be gospel-centered. It's to make the core truth about Christ at the center and the core, the very core of the gospel. There are entailments that go with the gospel. But the very core of the gospel is very simple. It is this, Christ died for our sins. That's simple. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. Five words in English. You can simply say, you want to know what the gospel is? You want to understand what the gospel is? You want to be able to tell your friends what the gospel is? It's this simple Christ died for our sins. Can you say that with me? Christ died for our sins. Five words, simple. You think you can tell your friends? Christ died for our sins. The gospel is simple and straightforward. That's the very core. That's the core of the light of Christ. The source and essence of the light is the gospel. Christ. Who is Christ? Christ means anointed one. It means king. Not just any king, but the king. Capital K. King, the key, capital T, capital K, King, the King. God in the flesh, the promised one, the one who came to save, the one who came to rule, the one who came to reign, the King, the Christ. Christ, not just any person, not just any king, but the King. God in the flesh, the perfect one, Christ. He died. He went to the cross. He chose to die. He chose to suffer. He chose to suffer and die on the cross. He chose to die at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish authorities, but even more importantly, at the hand of his Father. In an eternal agreement born of 
holiness and justice and love and wisdom. God the Father and God the Son determined that God would die on the cross. God the Son would die on the cross. Christ would die on the cross. He would bear the wrath of God for sin. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for our sin is to be cut off from God to receive the holy and perfect and wise and good justice of God. And so Christ died bearing that. He died for our sins. He took upon Himself our sins, our transgressions, our falling short, our willful transgressions, our willful negligence of what is good and right. We are all guilty. We have all sinned. That's a harsh reality. Our culture doesn't like to hear it, but it's not for their good that we skirt around that. We need to face it. We need to understand it in our own lives, and we need to find ways that are wise and winsome and truthful to help people understand that they're sinners and that there is this reality of sin. We are not just products of biology and culture. We are beings made in the image of God, and we choose what we want to worship. And we're culpable for it. And no matter how good we might seem on the relative scale, on God's perfect scale, on God's scale that measures everything, even the things, the recesses of our hearts we don't see, we are all guilty as charged. And the wonder of the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sin. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for the things that we have done that are wrong and offenses against a good and holy God. Christ died for our sins. He died for your sins. Christ died for your sins. That's amazing. Whose sins? Our sins. That's the only part of the gospel that you contribute to. Your sins. And he died for them. That is the glorious gospel. Now there are other aspects of the gospel that are important to remember and include and accent. Certainly, first and foremost, that he rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. That he is the victor. He conquered sin. He conquered it. He beat it. He beat your sin. He overcame it. Now in Him, and as you put your faith in Him and belong to Him, there's no longer any penalty for sin. There's no power in sin to rule you. And there will be one day no presence of sin. He is the victor on your behalf. He rose again to live forever. It's glorious. And that aspect has to be accented. But there's others to it as well. He ascended. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's reigning right now. He's in control. The kingdom is here. It's coming. It's already, but it's not yet. It's not fulfilled yet. He's reigning. He's He didn't go away to some faraway planet and forget about us. He reigns now and through the the presence and power of God, the Holy Spirit, in the church, God is working kingdom work and kingdom extension. And he will return one day soon. It could be today. It could be a thousand years from today. But he will return. Those are all important aspects to the gospel. And this gospel is what is the light. It's what brings the light. It's what comes in and shines on us and opens up our eyes. It's, it's as this truth comes, as this light shines and God 
opens our eyes up that we see the light. And there's life. Scripture talks a lot about it. I love Ephesians chapter 2, and we can project this. It talks about this, and it, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were blind, those are my words, even when we were blind, even when we couldn't see and didn't care to see, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 5a, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has shone on us. He has opened our eyes. He has made it so we could see. And it came by the power of the Holy Spirit as the light of the gospel shone on us. And our eyes opened and we were healed spiritually and could see and we were changed and transformed we went from blind to seeing and it is wonderful to watch God do this it is glorious to watch him work in people's lives to take people from being blind to seeing from being in a place where they don't perceive God in His glory. They don't get the gospel. They don't understand God's love. They don't understand God's holiness. They don't care a whole lot. They don't understand why sin is so sinful, that it's an offense against God who is so good and glorious. That's why sin is so sinful, because God is so good and so glorious and so worthy and so worthwhile. Sin is a tragedy. But to watch people go from that place to seeing where they get it and they see truth. I, I love to talk with people who are in that journey. Maybe have come to a place where they see. Maybe in process. And I love the stories. I love to hear. And this room is full of stories. Some of us came and it was dramatic. Boom, we were blind and then we could see. I would say for most of us it came in stages actually, much like the story here. My, my conversion, my coming from blindness to seeing was pretty dramatic, but as I think back on it, there were instances of where God was doing things and, and I was waking up and I was starting to see in a blurry way and then all, the, all of a sudden one day I could see. And it, it was remarkable. I remember it so well and it was years ago now. 35 or so years, whatever it is, a long time ago. 
bad math, 30, 32 years uh, ago or more. I was, I mean, I was in darkness. And it's so funny because people know me as a pastor and think like, you know, you must have always been a goody two-shoes or something. I was not a goody two-shoes. I was, I was, um, I hung around with some rough guys. And I, one time I remember I was, we were at a football game and I was just, I don't know what I was doing, but I was dropping the F-bomb so much that my friends had rebuked me. He was no, he was no, you know, Man, Mr. Manners at all. I mean, that's who I was. I was dark. That was my world. I lived in it. I didn't know much better. I was deceived. I, I did awful things. I was religious, actually. I went to church every Sunday. I, I went to even uh, youth group. But I was deceived. I didn't get it. Because I would, I would do all that, yet I would go out and I would get in fights and I would be abusive to people, arrogant, made my parents cry. I think I made my teachers cry. My brother got kicked out of class only because he was my brother. Um, and, and I was in darkness. And yet, the Lord reached into my life and caused me to see. And I remember vividly hearing the gospel for the first time that I understood it. And the light, the light shone. And I had heard it before, but I don't ever remember hearing it clearly. And I heard it, and it was so precious to me at that point. Christ had come to pay for my sins so that I could be a new creation and live a new life. And at that moment in time, that's all I wanted. I wanted to be a new creation. I wanted to be forgiven by God. I wanted, I wanted to be a different person. I wanted to turn from my sins. I wanted to trust Christ. And at that moment, I could see who He was. My eyes were opened. I put my faith in Him. Got down on my knees and prayed right there. And I could see, and it changed me. There's loads of stories here like this, but there's lots of stories, and probably lots more stories, more like my wife's story. For her, it was a process over a year or more of hearing and wrestling, perceiving but not perceiving. And finally, at some point, which I don't know if she could tell you exactly what date it was, she did perceive. And it was only in looking back and saying a year and a half ago, I didn't, and now I do. That she could say, now I understand. Now there's a point at which I perceive. And that's what this story is about in, in many ways, is that, that this healing that comes to us, this going from darkness to light, comes for most of us perhaps in stages. Yes, indeed, there's a difference. There's a point at which you don't see and you do see. I'm not saying that it isn't true. And there is a point in which you are dead and then you are alive. There's no half dead, half alive type thing. That's very clear in Scripture. But the process of going through that can come in stages. It can come in a way where you see but you don't. You perceive but you don't fully. You're tasting the kingdom of God, you're tasting the things of the Lord, you're experiencing the things of the Lord, yet you aren't in the Lord yet. And that's true. And this passage is about that. This passage is here so that we would reflect on this truth. It's here in context of the experience of the disciples, what they did. And it's here not just for that purpose, but for us as well. That we would understand this as followers. This section in Mark is about following Christ. What does it mean to be amazed by Christ? What do we do? We follow Him. 
But the process of following Him and the process of being able to see can come gradually. So what I want to do just in the remaining five minutes or so is just talk about some ways to apply that truth. This is an important truth. This section of Scripture is devoted to this, and the whole storyline in Mark is devoted to this. It's an important truth for us to understand. So I just want to think about some applications. Now these applications are not the truth in terms of the Scripture. This, this is the Scripture, what we're talking about. But I believe there's some, wise, there's some wise applications of this truth that I want us to think through, both as a group but also individually. So let me give you a few thoughts here on this. First, in relating to others, relating to those who are coming to see are coming to understand, let's just understand that it comes in stages. That understanding comes in stages. And so, for people maybe who are brand new to Christ, or maybe are coming back to the church and grew up around the church, but didn't come to know the Lord, or coming in just totally raw, and it's all new, even the idea of a supreme being is new, and they're in stages, as they come along, as they move along, And also for the children of believers, this is true. If you are a child of a believer, maybe you're an adult now and you believe, for you, I I would bet your experience was like this, that things happened in stages. So let's understand that as people come along, they're going to be healed in stages. They're going to have moments of brilliant insight. They're going to share something that's just like, whoa, that's great, that's exactly... They're going to say, you are the Christ." the son of the living God. They're going to have these moments like Peter did, and then they're going to have moments where they say really stupid things and heretical things. Let us understand and and be patient with that. doesn't mean we ignore it. doesn't mean we say, well, oh, that's okay. I like what you said. That's okay, and that's okay. It's all okay. No, we don't say that. We say, wonderful. Amen. And then we say over here, wow, that's interesting. I never heard it put that way. Let's talk about that. We can be gentle, but, we, but let's just understand that's part of what goes on. It's part of what goes on with our kids. There can be a process. Let us understand that for people coming to Christ, this is going to happen. Let's not freak out. Let's bear with them. Let's love them along the journey. Second application point. Let us recognize that the common evangelical idea of praying a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart can be a very unhelpful paradigm, a very unhelpful way of perceiving conversion. All right? This whole idea that your conversion is when you accept Jesus into your heart can be very unhelpful. I'm not saying it doesn't happen that way. But there are churches full of lots of people who have accepted Jesus in their heart, and Jesus doesn't live in their hearts from their lifestyles. By by their fruit, you'll know them. Judgment Day, he will look at our lifestyles to to testify to the life within. And we have to be careful that we don't determine does someone see or not by whether they prayed the prayer, whether they accepted Jesus in their heart. The Bible doesn't give a prayer for accepting Jesus into your heart. It does talk about professing with your mouth and believing in your heart. That is important. But that's in a context. It's not by itself. 
And we have to understand that, that often the understanding of who Christ is comes in stages. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, says that he thinks most prayers to accept Jesus into, into our heart is really just a, a prayer of interest in Jesus. Most or many people who pray that don't really get Jesus quite yet. They kind of like him. They kind of are interested in him. They kind of want to follow him, but they don't fully get what that means. And they need time. They need the church to help them in that process. So let's recognize that a healthy paradigm for this process is first to, associate, to see people associate with the church. They come in and they get to see Christ through the preaching and the people of the church. They associate. They start to see. They start to hear. They start to perceive. They start to say things that are brilliant. They, they start to see. And that's good. But it's a process. There are stages. And we're with them through that stage. And as they move through that stage, as they move along... They might pray the prayer at some point, but let us not say, now you're in. Let us encourage them. Let us understand there's a process. And then when they get to the place where now they do see, where there's a clear and consistent testimony of what the gospel is, and a lifestyle that affirms that to some degree, doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means there's change, there's repentance. You see them turning away from the old ways to, the, to Christ and trusting him. Then let them express that they see and have new life through the sacrament of baptism. That's to be the marker. That's the scriptural marker to say this one is in now. This one sees now. I hope that makes sense. And, and maybe that helps you understand some of our practices, that we don't do a whole lot of praying the prayer, walking the aisle. It's not that I'm terribly opposed to it. But scripturally and historically, it doesn't tend to happen that way. And I would say those who have come to Christ in our midst, it didn't happen that way. It was gradual. They heard. There was light. They came along bit by bit by bit. And then at some moment in there, they saw. But first they saw men as trees walking. They could see, but didn't. And then there was full healing, and they saw. And you can tell when they see. And that's the moment where it's time to be baptized and to join and be added to the church. But it doesn't stop there because, because the assumption in Romans 10 where it talks about professing, believing in your heart, professing, the assumption is they're part of a local church. They're part of a church where they're nurtured and cared for, where their faith is expressed, where their faith is strengthened, where their faith is tested perhaps and affirmed. And as they walk together with other believers over time, that's the place where you can say, indeed, yes, this one is a believer, because they remain and abide. It's he who endures to the end that will be saved. doesn't mean you're not saved now, but you're, you're, the proof of it is your long-term walking with God in the context even of a local church. I think if we don't get that, we can give people a false sense of salvation and a truncated view of Christianity that's unhelpful and even dangerous to them. So that's one other application of this. Third and final, as the band comes up. Let us understand that even when we do come to understand and see ourselves to the point where we get who Jesus is, and we are 
in Christ, forgiven of our sins, but we still will only see partially. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We see, and yet we don't see. This is why Scripture talks about believers both as sinners and saints. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians, can greet them so graciously and call them saints, and then rebuke them sternly for their sin in the letter. We are saints and sinners. We are seers and we are partial seers. This is why Paul in Romans 8 can talk about the glories of the gospel and life in Christ, but in Romans 7 talk about the sin that remains and indwells and what a wretched man I am. They go together. Luther put it this way in uh, the Latin is uh, simul justus et peccator. It means at the same time, Righteous and a sinner together. So we see, but we don't see. We do see indeed, truly, but not the full picture. Let us have humility as a result of that. Let us be suspect of our own insights and thoughts. Let us recognize we need others to help us. We need to submit ourselves to the Word of God. We need to walk humbly. We need to have what... uh, People call epistemological humility. It means you're just humble about what you think you know. I think this is true. The Word says this. It doesn't mean that you're, you waver on everything. But just you walk humbly, recognizing you don't see the full picture. All these things are implications from this wonderful short passage. Jesus heals blindness. He cures it. That's glorious. It often comes in stages. Let us learn to walk and follow this Jesus, to experience healing individually and as a church, even in stages. Let us be amazed by him as we do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you heal the blind. Oh Lord, this room is full of people who see now, who didn't see before. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, there's many in this room too who are in process. I'm glad, Lord. It's wonderful. It's a privilege to be alongside them, to watch you opening their eyes step by step. Lord, we ask you to open their eyes fully. That even right now, as the gospel is preached, Lord, they would see and believe and turn. And Lord, if they haven't been baptized, they'll be baptized in this next baptismal service coming up in a couple of months. Lord, we pray for this. And we pray there'll be more and more. Teach us how to walk wisely in light of this truth, of this passage. And glorify your name through it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.